Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I'm delighted to be doing a piece today with Pat Crisito, the owner of a company called Desert Harvest. I have called her to the show because I've been interested in the plant aloe vera for years, but we've never covered it on its rainmaking time. This is an ancient plant, and as early as 4000 BC, the Egyptians knew about this plant. The Native Americans know about this plant. Aristotle persuaded Alexander the Great to conquer the island of Socotra to secure the aloe vera for medical purposes. The plant was seen on drawings on temple walls in the tombs of the pharaohs. It is considered the plant of immortality. For some, it's the plant of miracles. The aloe vera plant was depicted for medical purposes in 1750 BC on the Sumerian tablets and in 1500 BC, Pappus Emrys, where formulas that contain aloe vera are described both in internal and external uses. By 600 BC, the use of aloe vera appears in the Persian Empire, in the Arab world, and in India. It has also appeared in Russia and in other countries around the world. People cut open the plant and they put it on burns or problems with their skin. But there's all kinds of uses for aloe vera. Aloe vera can function as an antibiotic, a pain reliever, an anti-inflammatory. It carries 77 parts per trillion of oxygen through the bloodstream. It's rich in vitamins, minerals, and essential elements, which contribute to cellular health. Some use aloe vera for healing and regeneration because it's absorbed through all layers of the tissue. Now, not all aloe vera is the same. And when you talk about manufacturing related to this plant, you better know what you're doing. Our guest actually has organic aloe vera that is grown with no pesticides or fertilizers and uses a cold process to preserve the active ingredients. Two hours after it's picked, the company processes the whole leaves, not just the inner gel. There has been controversy around this beloved plant because of something called anthraquinones, which are the negative side effects of aloe vera. But if it's extracted in processing, you won't have problems with aloe vera. I just love the whole system, the whole way in which Pat writes and talks about this miraculous plant and product line. It is my honor and pleasure to have her here today on its rainmaking time. Good morning. Thank you, Kim. It's great being here. You know, this plant has a mystery to it. And I know that as the founder of Desert Harvest, you know that. Why is it so mysterious? It wasn't until about 50 years ago that science has been able to narrow down the active ingredients in the aloe plant. Before that, people just knew it worked. They would put it on burns, like you said. They would take it internally. A lot of times they use it as a laxative, a purgative to clear out the bowels. We know today that those latex chemicals in the aloe plant, those 10 anthroquinones, are really quite dangerous for your bowel. And so you should never use aloe vera as a laxative. The FDA recently came out with a statement that says aloe vera that contains the anthroquinones is actually cancer-causing. It's very dangerous. So you don't ever want to take aloe vera that has the anthroquinones still intact. And if the label doesn't say they've removed the anthroquinones, they probably haven't. One of the special ways of processing aloe vera to minimize the amount of anthraquinones is to use just the gel on the inside. 
if you were to cut a leaf open of the aloe plant, you would notice this yellow sap that runs up against the rind and kind of comes out and it's kind of icky looking. Those are the anthraquinones. And so we want to remove those 100%. And to do that, when you use the whole plant like we do, we have to use a very expensive patented filtration process. We want to get 100% of those out so that there is no risk so that you could take our aloe vera long term. So whenever you're looking for aloe vera, whether it's juice or whether it's powder in a capsule like ours, you want to make sure that the anthraquinones have been removed. Now, I was reading on your site in one of the articles that there was a doctor, I think it was in the 80s, that said that a lot of the aloe vera drinks don't have much aloe vera in them and they don't have enough to do anything. Is that true still? Part of it is because the aloe plant, when it grows, is 99.5% water and insoluble fiber. So if you were to just take the inner gel and process it and stick it in a jar and preserve it with citric acid or sometimes with heat, which is not a good thing, you'll end up with something that's pure aloe vera. But you're getting mostly water and soluble fiber. And so what you've got to do is remove some of that water and concentrate it, whether you use a concentrated liquid or whether you use, like we have, we've removed 100% of the water and 100% of the fiber. When you run aloe vera juice through a spectrometry analysis when it's fresh out of the field, you're going to find more than 200 peaks. That means there's over 200 ingredients in the aloe plant. A lot of those ingredients are nutritional ingredients, like your vitamins and minerals. The plant takes those out of the soil, so you've got a lot of nutritional ingredients. So when you take the water and the fiber out, you end up with a really dense source of nutrients. You've got the polysaccharides, which are the glycosaminoglycans. It's what some people call mannose but there's several sizes of polysaccharides, and they all have different purposes when you use them. Some are anti-inflammatory, some are antimicrobial, some are pain relievers. And so those different polysaccharides are the active ingredient in the aloe plant. There's more of those than anything else in the aloe plant. Those are the ingredients you really need, and you need to filter out the anthraquinones. So if you just leave 100% juice with some citric acid to preserve it, you're getting mostly water. So concentration is the key to getting an effective aloe product. Very interesting. It is said that there's more than 300 variations of this plant out there. So how did you figure out which plant to work with? Well, it took a lot of science. (laughs) It took a lot of tests and trials and errors and testing various species of the aloe plant to figure out which one had the highest levels of those polysaccharides, those glycosaminoglycans that are so important. And we found that the Barbadensis Miller plant is the highest concentration. It doesn't look like the one that you grow in your garden. It doesn't look like the one you put on your kitchen shelf that you find in the nursery. It's a lot bigger. The leaves are huge, 6 to 10 inches across at the bottom. They're really large, and they grow 2 or 3 feet tall and 3 feet wide. They're huge plants, and we only have to harvest the outer leaves a couple of times a year It actually takes one of those plants an entire year of harvesting to make one bottle of our 180 freeze-dried aloe vera capsules. Wow. So when you take out the water, the anthraquinones, and the fiber, there's just a tiny bit of powder left. Most people will take whatever they can get if they were to process it the way we do and then add fillers, or they don't take out the fiber. They leave in the fiber so that it's not as expensive to produce. It's a whole lot cheaper to find fiber as psyllium and other things than it is to get it out of the aloe plant. And so if you want the active ingredients in the aloe, you really need to find a concentrated version. 
So there's a whole science to this processing that's very critical. You know, it has to be processed, the aloe leaves, once they're picked, within six hours. Why six? Where did you come up with that? (laughs) Well, we measure the polysaccharides of the various juices as they came from the field. And what we discovered is that the enzymes in the aloe plant begin to break down those polysaccharides. The polysaccharide, a saccharide is a sugar. Mannose is a plant sugar, just like other plants have sugars in them, whether apples or oranges or whatever. They've all got various sugars in them. Well, the polysaccharide is a sugar. And so the enzymes begin to eat the sugars the minute you pick it. And if you don't process it in that little six-hour window, so much of the polysaccharide has been eaten by the enzymes that you don't get very much of the active ingredient. We actually have a policy in our fields that our aloe plants, once they're picked, have to be processed within two hours. We don't even go six hours. We make sure it's done within two hours. That's extraordinary. Wow. What a whole systems approach to processing this plant. Well, and there's only two ways to preserve aloe vera juice once it's processed. You either have to heat treat it, which caramelizes the polysaccharides, which makes them non-effective, or you have to add some kind of an acid to lower the pH so that it stops the enzyme action, stops the fermentation process, or if you do like we do, and we make the juice and then we freeze dry it. We're taking everything out. Everything is still bioactive once it's reconstituted, but it stops the action when you freeze dry something. Do you think that there's going to be some people out there, Pat, that say, if you freeze dry something, you do lose the active ingredients? And how do you respond to that? That isn't true. We have ours tested. Every single batch is tested. We have one of the highest levels of polysaccharides, especially the large chain polysaccharides, than any other aloe that's been tested out there. And when you use this cryovac freezing process that we use, it makes all the little droplets the same size so we can actually pack more in a capsule than you can if you use other freeze-drying processes. You mean what I said wasn't true or what people may think about it isn't true? Is that what you mean? What you said isn't true. Okay, good. That's good to know. Because some people may assume, you know. We process it. We test it. Once we test it, we know it's there, so it hasn't destroyed anything. (laughs) That's great. How did you get into this and why did you get into this? Oh, gosh. Come on, give us the scoop. It was 20 years ago. (laughs) My sister had interstitial cystitis, which is a bladder disorder. They still don't know what causes it. The women and the men who have it feel like they have a UTI, a urinary tract infection that will never, ever go away. No matter what doctors do, no matter what, there's no infection present. They have to urinate every 15, 20 minutes. They get up four and five times in the middle of the night. They may pee 60 times a day. It's a horrible disease. If you look at the bladder lining with IC patients, IC is the abbreviation for interstitial cystitis. It's sometimes called chronic pelvic pain. Sometimes it's called painful bladder syndrome. Over the years, they've come up with different names for it. When did you notice a relationship between whole leaf freezing of the aloe vera plant and interstitial cystitis? Was it 1993? It was 1993. My sister had IC. She was visiting us. She had tried an aloe vera that she thought was helping her, and we gave her this particular concentrated aloe. At the time, we were making it with more of the fiber leptin because it was less expensive and it was easier to make and it was for a different market. And she had to take 21 capsules, but she took 21 capsules throughout the day. She slept through the night for the first time in 10 years. And she said, there's something here. You know, let's start 
making a product that's more concentrated. Let's find a way to make something that will help people like me. And so she came into business with us, and we worked and worked and worked and finally got all the fiber out of the aloe product, got it down to where she could only had to take six capsules a day, and she could stay symptom-free. So in 1995, after two years of playing with this and experimenting with it with various IC patients, we did a double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trial, came up with an 87.5% response rate. 87.5% of the patients in the clinical trial received at least some relief from their symptoms. Half the patients had total relief from the symptoms. 37.5% of patients got partial relief. So it was really exciting. And then we decided to partner with the Interstitial Cystitis Association and the Interstitial Cystitis Network and have worked with a lot of doctors and a lot of patients now. Over the last 20 years, we've worked with 50,000 IC patients. And we did a retrospective study of our database in about 2000. It was 600 patients and got similar results that we did in our clinical trial. It was awesome. The claim to fame of many things, including your manufacturing process with aloe vera, is that you process the whole leaf and not just the inner gel. Can you talk about that? Because most of us have a relationship to aloe vera from the inner gel, using it for burns and skin abrasions and things like that. You know, and it works for that. If you were to break open any species of aloe plant and rub it on a burn, it's going to help that burn thousands of years. That's what they've used it for. In fact, Cleopatra used it as one of her beauty herbs. <laughs> uh, I used to put it, I still put it under my makeup. We had a product called Angel Mist that we've now replaced with our gelée. And now I use the gelée under my makeup every day. I use it kind of as a foundation. And nobody believes I'm 60 years old. So <laughs> it's awesome. But the difference between the inner leaf and the whole leaf is the fact that the inner leaf doesn't contain the anthraquinones or not as many of them. They're able to cut off the outer leaves and that yellow sap I was talking about earlier. And so it's cheaper to produce. But it's mostly water and soluble fiber. And so that's the difference. If you were just to grind up the inner gel and put it in a jug with some preservatives, you'd have 100% aloe vera, but it's not the whole plant. We believe in the synergy of the whole plant. Since there's over 200 ingredients in the aloe plant, we don't know exactly which one of those is working the best. In fact, if they take out the mannose by itself, put it on a burn, for instance, and try to get it to do the same thing that the whole plant does, it doesn't work. Wow. To get the benefit of the whole plant, you have to use the whole plant. But because there's so much fiber in that outer green leaf, the insoluble fiber, people will sometimes grind up the whole leaf and make a product and sell it as a whole leaf aloe vera product and it's cheaper to produce. Like I said before, if you leave some of the fiber in, it doesn't cost as much to produce. Or if you add fillers and fiber and other things to the capsule, if you've got the powder in the capsule like we do, then it's cheaper to produce. But what we believe is a synergy of the whole plant, so we only remove the water, the fiber, and those 10 anthraquinones because we don't want anyone to get colon cancer. And so all those have been removed from our product, and so you've got almost 200 ingredients still left. And we believe it's that synergy that's working for our customers. It's really important, I think, to have that whole gob of ingredients that are in the aloe plant. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. I want you to consider that the water we drink is crucial to our health and well-being. I also want you to consider that chronic dehydration is the precursor to a disease state. The work of Dr. Batman Jelic demonstrates this. 
Many of us are trying to find alkalized water to drink, thinking that's going to be the answer to impacting our health and well-being. Most of us don't know that if we cannot get our body hydrated, we cannot achieve continuous alkalinity, which is a promoter of health and well-being. The physics of water is totally distinct from the chemistry of water. And until you understand what that means to health and wellness, you can be lost in trying to understand what is good, healthy water to drink. Dr. Jacques Benveniste was right when he said that water has memory and is alive. And Dan Nelson is right when he says there's a distinction between irrigating the body and hydrating it. And most of us attempt to hydrate it by drinking more water Cells cannot assimilate most of the water that we drink, so our cells are dehydrated all the time. Learn the science about this by going to the Positron Group and consider purchasing Wayback Water, the fast track to hydration by Dan Nelson, who's a physicist, an educator, and a man who's committed that we have healthy, remarkable drinking water. Go to waybackwater.com or call Nancy Ainsley at 870-741-5877. And back to the show. Is it true that aloe vera has been used in the treatment of arthritis, chronic pelvic pain, radiation burns, and immune system disorders? There's been a lot of research done on the skin with aloe vera. In fact, on our website, you'll find something called the Physician's Portal. Just because it says physician's portal doesn't mean that the average Joe can't get into it. So we allow anyone into the physician's portal. There are thousands of research studies on aloe vera, most of them on the skin, radiation burns in particular. In fact, it was studied back in the earlier nuclear experiments in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. It was used to treat those radiation burns long before they thought that radiation was harmful. They used it for radiation burns. Even though it caused burns, they still didn't think radiation was harmful back then. We actually have a new product called Relievium, which we use with our special aloe vera, our concentrated aloe vera. We combine it with a group of botanicals that are known to help burns, and then we add lidocaine. It's actually an over-the-counter drug. It's one of our first over-the-counter drugs that we have created, and it's used by radiation oncologists to treat radiation burns, or they don't call them burns. They call them irritation. (laughs) It also helps. You look like burns to me on my dear friend, burns all over her body. Well, and after you get repeated radiation treatments, your skin begins to break down. And what we found in our trials in radiation practices is that if you start applying the relievium from the first day of the first radiation treatment, even if you don't have any noticeable red or burning, it can help prevent that skin breakdown. You use it every day throughout your entire course of treatment. And you can ask your doctor about the relievium. It's, It's a great product if you have any kind of radiation burns. You can use it for kitchen burns. You can use aloe vera for eczema, for psoriasis, for any kind of skin irritation. If there's pain associated with it, you would want to buy a relievium. If there's no real pain and it's just skin irritation, we have a gelée that is awesome. I keep one in my refrigerator. If I ever get a burn in the kitchen, I start applying it every 15 minutes. And then when the pain's gone, the burn is gone. It never does turn into a blister. It's awesome. I have tried other products of aloe vera on my skin, and I really didn't like it. And it had a funny smell to it that wasn't the aloe. I think it was the fillers or something in there. 
I couldn't stand it. And so I thought there's something wrong with it and I never used it. And then when I heard about your company and the way that you manufacture and how meticulous you are, that's when I became interested. And again, actually, I was in the high desert with a dear friend of mine who's a dowser. When I got up there, he says, I want you to have a few of these. It'll oxygenate you. And then I read that aloe vera carries 77 parts per trillion of oxygen through the bloodstream. What does that mean? And that means that it's increasing the blood flow and increasing the oxygen level in your tissues. It actually penetrates all layers of the skin. It goes down deeper into the tissues and carries with it anything that it has in addition to the aloe as a carrier. And so that's why it increases your nutritional status. If you take aloe vera concentrates and you drink it, and this has been a study by the International Aloe Science Council, if you were to take aloe vera at the same time that you took your nutritional supplements or the same time you eat a meal, they can actually measure higher levels in the blood up to 48 hours later than if you hadn't have taken the aloe with it, which means that it is increasing your nutritional status. So if you have any problems absorbing nutrients, and in my case, I've had a foot of colon removed and three pieces of small intestine, and so I'm always nutritional deficient. I've been taking the concentrated aloe now that we make for 20 years. I take nine capsules a day for my rheumatoid arthritis because I used to take 80 milligrams of prednisone a day, and now I only have to take 15. It hasn't cured my disease by any means. My disease is still here. Nothing cures rheumatoid arthritis, but it definitely has made my symptoms less, and I'm able to take less prednisone. Whenever I get a burn, like I said, I use it on the skin, and it can prevent the huge blisters that come with burns. In fact, there are now bandages soaked with aloe vera that are now put in ambulances so that they can treat burns in the field because they found if you treated it with aloe vera immediately, long before they get to the emergency room, the outcome is much better. And so it's that ability to carry things with it, to penetrate, to carry oxygen to the cells that increases the healing. So anything that it touches is healed. For instance, if you've got ulcers in your esophagus, if you've got ulcers in your stomach, if you've got ulcerative colitis in your small intestine or your large intestine, you have Crohn's disease, anything with an inflammatory component that causes ulcers, if the aloe vera touches it like it does on the skin, it has that same effect in the gut. Have you ever been asked when people are taking this concentrated aloe vera, what percentage is absorbed? Because, you know, there's ingestion and then there's absorption. Yes. There hasn't been a study that has shown how much is actually excreted. We know that some of it is excreted into the bladder. Otherwise, it wouldn't be healing the ulcers in the bladder of interstitial cystitis. Part of the aloe is processed through the kidneys and part through the liver. But you're going to have some of it excreted. And, of course, the liver will process a lot. It does. Exactly. So there's not been any studies that say a certain percentage is the liver, a certain percentage of the kidneys, a certain percentage is excreted through the urine, a certain percentage is excreted through the bowels. But we know because it's actually healing for gut diseases that it is getting into the colon and the small intestine. So some of it is being excreted there. And with the interstitial cystitis, we know that some of the polysaccharides have to be getting into the bladder or there wouldn't be this Band-Aid effect on the bladder lining that's helping IC patients. Some of it is also absorbed into the bloodstream, which is where your kidneys and your liver come in, because they can measure increased nutrients. They can't measure the actual aloe in the blood, because there is no aloe per se in the blood. It's what it breaks down into that go into the bloodstream. I mean, there's not been any studies, as far as I know, that have tested the actual excretion percentages. We know that it does, like I said, get excreted through all those methods, but 
which percentages are which, we don't know. How did you find out that nomadic people would dig up their valuable aloe plants and carry them live to every new campsite for fear that they might not find them growing in their new location? That's just part of history. When you read the historical literature, you find mention of the aloe plant. We know that they do it today, and so we assume they did it in history. Like you said, the Sumerian tablets, you can see pictures of aloe vera, so you know that aloe was used 4,000 years ago because the earliest pictograms have aloe listed. We know that it was one of the burial herbs for Christ. It was mentioned in the Bible at least five times. I want to ask you about the chief engineer for this large international pharmaceutical company named Lee that there's an article about. And that the reason the FDA has not touched this is because it's an ancient plant. It's been public for a long time and it can't be patented. And that's why they don't get involved in it. But I thought that was a very interesting piece. In other words, a new drug can run from 100 to $300 million just for getting an FDA approval. Yeah, nobody is ever going to make it a drug and spend that kind of money because the minute they start selling it, the minute they publish their study results, everybody else is going to start doing it. They're going to start manufacturing it. Pharmaceutical companies have no interest in plants that they can't extract a single ingredient out of and make it a drug. For instance, in the 80s, there was a study at the University of Texas with AIDS patients, and they actually made a drug out of aloe vera. They extracted the polysaccharides and made something called ace manin. Ace manin is not aloe vera. It's a single ingredient out of the aloe plant. And then they used that in their tests with AIDS patients because that's something that could be patented because they could extract, like Bayer aspirin was originally made out of the bark of a willow tree. And if you took the whole bark of the willow tree and made a drug out of it, you couldn't patent it. But if you could extract the active ingredient that acted as the pain reliever and then turn it into aspirin, then Bayer had a patentable product. Well, patents last seven years, and then after that, they're available to anybody to use. And so now all aspirin, well, most aspirin, uh, there's very little aspirin that's actually made from the willow bark. It's now made from chemical in the laboratory means because they've been able to synthesize it. That's the difference between a drug and a plant. Now, the National Institutes of Health, the NIH, has a complementary and alternative medicine division. Over the last 15 or 20 years or so, they've been providing grants to people like us who want to do clinical trials but are small companies or can't afford the millions of dollars to turn something into a drug, but they'd like to make sure that they have science to back up their product. And so we as a company funded our first clinical trial, but we've got doctors willing to do hundreds of patients in a clinical trial begging to do studies with our product, and it's just a matter of writing the grant and getting monies in order to fund it. It doesn't make sense for a company like us to spend $500,000 on a huge 200-patient clinical trial in multi-centers. If we can't patent something, if everybody else is going to take our study the next day and use it to manufacture something similar to what we do, we can't patent what we do. Isn't that a good thing? It is a good thing because anybody can do it. But it doesn't make sense for us to invest millions of dollars in clinical trials if we can't patent the product. And so it's not really the FDA's fault. It's just the fact that you can't patent something God made. You can only patent something that man-made. And so it's a challenge for companies like us. But as long as we can get grant monies from sources like the NIH, we can afford to do clinical trials. 
and we can afford to find the science behind why our products work. And if you can get universities and students in universities to do it as one of their things that they need to publish, then you could do it a lot cheaper. And so we're looking to universities to help fund our clinical trials. Does it look like it could happen? Oh, absolutely. We went through a real downtime since 2008 anyway, and so there was no funding available. Right now, if you write a grant, you stand a 1 in 16 chance of getting approved, and they're usually not huge grants. You might be able to get part of the funding through a grant, but it's a 1 in 16 chance. And so we have to fund the writing of the grant because doctors don't want to take a chance on writing a grant and getting a 1 in 16 chance that they'll get their money back from paying their staff to write the grant. You know, there's a lot of economics that go into product development and clinical trials. It's really a challenge. We have the protocols written. We've hired the experts to write the protocols. We're ready to do another study with interstitial cystitis patients. We've got several doctors interested in doing studies with the new Relevium product. So we're really excited about where we're going. The economy is improving. We're hoping that the grants monies will be a little more available. But anything run by the government, grant monies are hard to come by nowadays. I want to talk to you a little bit more about the manufacturing process. I recognize that you take a stand publicly that these are organic plants. There's no pesticides or fertilizers. How do you protect the plants from, I guess, bad bugs or mold or fungus or any kind of problems that other plants might experience? Oh, you know what is really cool about the aloe plant is it doesn't need any of that stuff. It's easy to get organic status for aloe vera because it's not bothered by any pests. We don't have any pest problems at all. There's no need for fertilizers unless you're going to use organic fertilizers. At some point, you could use animal and plant-based natural fertilizers and still maintain your organic certification. Our aloe fields are certified organic. They have certifications. So we have to meet certain requirements. We can't use any chemical pesticides, any chemical herbicides, fungicides, or fertilizers. But there's natural fertilizers, and that's all the aloe plants need. Once the aloe plant has been in a certain place for a long time and you've been harvesting from it, it's taking what's in the soil and putting it into the plant. And so eventually it would become nutrient deficient if we didn't give it nutrients. But there's a lot of organic ways to do that without having to use chemicals. And like I said, there's no bugs that bother them. There's no fungicides. So there's no need for herbicides. There's no real weeds that grow up. It grows in a very dry environment. It's not quite a desert plant, but it's considered a succulent. It's not a cactus. So it does require water. But our fields have very few weeds. They have to be pretty much hand-picked out if there are or tilled out. We don't use herbicides of any kind. We hand-pick the weeds till it to get rid of whatever weeds might be growing between the rows. But there's no need for anything else. As all the plants need are some occasional food. They're real easy to grow. There's a big thing going on all over the country and the world about water. And there's a whole new science of cleaning water and filtering water. Do you get into any of that or you just grow it with any water you got? Well, we make sure that the water is good water and safe water. We don't want any water that's contaminated in any way. So we do test our waters that are used on the plant, but it doesn't require a lot of irrigation. It grows in the Gulf region toward the coast, and so it tends to get enough water without a huge lot of irrigation, so it's not even necessary to irrigate very much. Aloe vera stores its water very effectively. That's why it's a succulent. It's like a cactus. Whatever water it gets, it stores, so there's not a real huge need for water. And when we do, we make sure that the water is nice and clean. Do you know much about the aloe vera conditions in Africa, in Greece, or Russia? Any information on that? No, because 
we only buy aloe vera from our own protected certified fields. Okay. I don't want to travel to those countries. Right. Like, we don't get aloe from China because we don't trust China. I understand. I know. They're good with the meridians in medical stuff, but for products, yeah. for health, forget it. Most of the vitamin C in the United States, people don't know, is from China. It's not even from here. 99% of the vitamin C in America is from China, and people don't even know it. Frightening. <laughs> yeah. Especially after the dog food incidents and the melamine and all the other things. And Frightening. I just don't trust them. And so I wouldn't buy anything from any country with a reputation for not being straightforward. What is the big challenge now for a manufacturer of a supplement today that you can talk about? Sourcing. For instance, our quercetin. Quercetin is really helpful for interstitial cystitis as well as the aloe. So we manufacture a quercetin product, and it's made from a Sephora plant that we can only get from one country in South America. I mean, you can get quercetin from other sources, but that's the natural best place to get quercetin. And they only harvest it once a year in August. And if we don't get enough product, in August to last us a year, and we need to order, say, in June, and the supply is gone, you're just up a creek. And so you have to really be careful of your sourcing. You have to make sure that what you're buying is what it's supposed to be and that it's grown the way you want it to be, which requires a lot of travel and a lot of sourcing and you know, a lot of ruling out of people that you don't trust. And so once we find a source for a product, we protect it very carefully and making sure that what you get is what they say it is is the hardest thing for supplement manufacturers today. I would imagine that there's huge research, travel, sussing out of who's who and what they're really doing, because they could bring you in the front end of something, but something else is happening on the back end that you don't see. I would imagine a lot of your time goes to that. Yeah, when we're doing new product development, I mean, that is the one thing that I spend most of my time on, is making sure that the product is what it says it is, visiting the actual sources, visiting the manufacturing plants, making sure that they follow GMP, which is good manufacturing practices, and that they're completely compliant in that area so that we are compliant. Your source determines whether or not you're compliant. So even though we do our own bottling and processing and mixing of stuff, we don't grow the Sephora plants ourselves. So we have to make sure that that source is exactly what they say it is. And before I'll even buy one thing from somebody, I have to make sure it's exactly what I want. I have to make sure that they follow GMP guidelines so that we are GMP compliant because we have to be good manufacturing practices compliant. I would imagine when you're bringing in another source to be part of a manufacturing process, there's a lot of times that the materials that come in are radiated at the ports. What do you think about that? We don't. A lot of our stuff actually doesn't come from overseas except for things like the quercetin. Radiation itself in small doses doesn't affect the actual chemical structure of the plant itself. We haven't done this yet, but we're working on a new product, and it's going to require us to use a certain type of radiation to make it sterile. I can't talk to you about what the product is at the moment, but <laughs> without giving that away, it's something that we're going to have to low-dose radiation in order to make it a pharmaceutical-grade product. And unless you're willing to heat something and pasteurize it to sterilize it, which we cannot do with the aloe vera, the only way to get rid of the microbes and to make it sterile is to use a radiation treatment. It's a very specific, low-dose radiation, and what we've done 
in our testing is to find out if it's affected anything about the plant itself or the ingredients in it. And we're still working on the testing on this. But so far, what we found is it has not destroyed any of the ingredients in the aloe at this particular level of radiation. But the other products that we use in our nutritional supplements are not imported, so we don't have to worry about anything happening at large radiation doses. That's great. So I don't, uh, I don't really have to deal with that. But I do know that it's certain low-dose radiation for pharmaceuticals that it doesn't affect the chemical structure at all. That's good to know. I don't know that all of us would assume that unless it was really verified. You know what I'm saying? That's why we've had to do these tests, because I was skeptical myself. But I knew I couldn't heat treat it to make it sterile, and this was our only way of making it sterile. We'd even tried some methods of acidification, but it made it too acidic. It would make it non-microbial friendly, but it wasn't sterile, even at that. Have you ever had reports about the aloe vera helping with heartburn at all? It depends on what's causing the heartburn. Aloe vera is not an acid reducer, and so it can't do that. It's not a buffer. It can't reduce the acidity of the stomach acid. It cannot reverse a mechanical problem. Right. And so if you've got a hiatal hernia that's causing a reflux, aloe vera isn't going to fix that. The only thing it does is when you take the aloe vera, the contents of the stomach are regurgitated when you've got a reflux. And so the aloe vera ends up regurgitating at the same time everything else does. And so you've got the aloe vera touching those burning, burned places in the esophagus. And so... Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, it can help heal the irritation and the ulceration and the inflammation. But it can't fix the mechanical problem, and it's not an anti-acid. Right. Well, we found out anyway that lacking acid is not the problem with heartburn, that it's sometimes not enough acid. The science on this that we're now talking about is very different than it was 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, I'm sure. But there are other things that aloe vera has helped with. Do you feel comfortable to talk about them? The only thing I can do is I can tell you about myself. I can tell you about my family. I can tell you about some of the research studies that have been done. We know that it works because of the clinical trials we've done in interstitial cystitis, and it supports the healing of the bladder wall. We know that it stops the inflammation, and it has natural pain relievers. We know what the aloe vera has, and so you can extrapolate from that. If it's got an anti-inflammatory property, any disease with an inflammatory property, you know, it can help. I can tell you that I've been taking it for my arthritis for 20 years, that I take less prednisone than I did 20 years ago. Right, right. I remember you saying that. Yeah. I can tell you that people who take concentrated aloe vera have to watch their blood sugar if they've got diabetes because it actually makes their diabetes better so they don't need as much insulin. So they really have to watch their blood sugar. That was a test done that was a finding that was not even expected in a study that was done in India where several thousand patients with aloe vera and heart disease. And they found accidentally that the diabetes was better. We know that in the digestive system, anything that it touches is an anti-inflammatory. So, you know, if there's an inflammatory component in your digestive disorder, I don't know why it helps lower cholesterol or helps with heart disease. I don't even know that they've been able to prove that it did in their studies in India. We know that it was studied in AIDS and HIV, that it was able to raise T-cell count, which means it's having some effect on the immune system. You can extrapolate from that that if there's an immune system problem that raises T-cell count, then it might help with immune system problems. I know my husband has no medical problems whatsoever, and he takes the aloe. He only takes three a day, but he never gets a cold. He never gets the flu. He never takes a flu shot. He just is, he's never sick. 
and I don't ever get colds and flu, and I take it for my rheumatoid. So I don't know why. It Maybe it's having some effect on the immune system like it did in AIDS patients. We know that it has some pain-relieving properties. You mean on the skin or in general? Anywhere that it touches. It has anti-inflammatory action, but it also has salicylic acid, like aspirin. Okay. Why do you think my friend up in the high desert gave me your product to take once I was up high? Because of that oxygen you're talking about. The ability to oxygenate the cells. I live at 7,400 feet, and most people would come up here and have headaches and be a mess. So any visitors from out of state that come visit me, I instantly give them the aloe vera just because of that ability to oxygenate the tissues. Sounds like you've done a really beautiful body of work. What were you doing before Desert Harvest? You know, I'm a writer by trade and a businesswoman. I have a business degree, and I've been running an international corporation for 33 years. I write for the Wall Street Journal and the Boston Globe. I've written 16 books, and that's what I've always done. And I worked for Arthur Anderson before that when they used to be so straight shirt. That <laughs> I have no clue how they ended up the way they did. But back when I worked for them in the 70s, I mean, they were trying to decide it was ethical to advertise in the yellow pages. So, But anyway, that was with Arthur Anderson for six years. And then I started my own business in 1980. And I had 43 employees, clients in 42 countries. I had been doing that for years. And my husband and my sister asked me uh, when they started this business in 1993, if I would help them, and I agreed. And then in 1998, I took over product development and marketing and became the CEO of the company and have been doing that ever since. In addition to, I keep writing stuff. I have several business, I have my writing business on the side, but the other business has kind of gone quietly away while I've been building Desert Harvest because it's been such a passion of mine. And I love what I do because every single day we get calls from patients saying that we've given them their life back, you know, or some wonderful story about somebody's child who has helped. Our employees love to come to work every day and they tell us that they would never work anywhere else because every day they get to talk to people that they have helped and it's just so fulfilling. It's extraordinary. What a divine pleasure to talk with you. And I want to thank you for what you're doing at Desert Harvest and the people that you're helping. And thank you for your integrity and your whole systems manufacturing and consciousness that you've imbued into your business. And I want to thank you for joining us at It's Rainmaking Time. Is there anything else you'd like to say? No, but we appreciate your spreading the word about aloe vera. I don't care whose aloe you buy, whether you buy ours or somebody else's, just make sure that it doesn't have the anthraquinones and that you're not buying just water, that you get something concentrated. We just want to make sure that you're getting a healthy, helpful product. And I appreciate your giving me the opportunity to spread the word about aloe. What a pleasure. It's rainmaking time. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Pat Crescito, the Chief Executive Officer of Desert Harvest. If you're interested to find out more about the Miraculous Aloe Vera plant and Desert Harvest, go to desertharvest.com. Thank you very much.